Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning in a jubilant capital, where I'm pretty sure everybody is nursing a hangover, is Andrea Childs. Andrea is the owner and managing director of Click Business Solutions, which specialises in providing help and support in the writing and compilation of selection questionnaires, bid and tender documents, and sales presentations for public sector tender processes. Um, Andrea, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, hello. Great to be with you. Thank you. Yes, it's a great to have you with us as well, Andrea. Certainly is a lovely day for it. The sun is shining um, in the aftermath of a fantastic win, of course, for the England national team in the European Championships last night. And we're through to a first major final since 1966. Um, I am sorry to have to sort of dampen that mood with the first point that we're going to have to discuss on the show today but I think it would be remiss of me not to address the elephant in the room here and that's the fact that as we record this podcast in early July 2021 we are still living under some curtailments of freedoms due to the COVID-19 situation aren't we and that's now been the case for the best part of 15 or 16 months give or take going back to March 2020. Um, if we sort of look at that whole period as one Andrea to what extent would you say COVID has affected you and your operations over at Click? Okay, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, yeah, last night was amazing, wasn't it? It was great to see a kind of release, really, after so long and, and so being pent up and, and then shut away for so long. Last night was just such a great release for people. So that was great. And I think mm. can, with the 19th of July, we can see a way out of, of this. But um, but as for Click and my business, I mean, I employ uh, 13 people. Um, and we're a relatively small business, but we provide tender writing services to the predominantly the private sector who are wanting to win business with the public sector. So um, initially, obviously, when this pandemic, I mean, who'd have thought it? Who'd have thought we'd have ever had a pandemic? And, uh, and it's quite strange, really. Is mm. One of the things that we have to write about for a lot of our clients is their business continuity and disaster recovery plans. If they win a large contract with the public sector, how would they carry on if there was ever such a thing as a pandemic? And you know, it's happened, and I think we were all initially hugely concerned. I certainly was with, for my business that um, our our work stream would actually dry up, that we would have no tenders to write because the public sector wouldn't be putting, um, wouldn't be buying, wouldn't be putting tenders out to market, wouldn't be looking for new suppliers. Certainly not in the way where we're used to, where quite comprehensive and complicated tender documents need to be uh, completed. Because obviously in an emergency situation in a country, they can um, bypass the tendering, um, the, the normal tendering situation and actually emergency buy where they don't have to go through such a long-winded and complex situation. So, yeah, initially, huge concerns for us of whether we would actually, A, um, have tenders to write for our clients and also uh, another uh, big concern that 
were our clients going to survive? You know, our clients that we've looked after, some of them for, for, for 10, 15 years, were they going to survive? And therefore, would they still be there wanting us to write tenders for them? So, yeah, real concerns um, in those early months, um, which basically meant we had to make a couple of redundancies, which was the first time in 16 years, first time in the business history we've ever had to make anybody redundant. It was a really upsetting moment for us, um, but we had to do that because we had two relatively new staff in the business that couldn't work from home um, unsupervised. They weren't ready. They weren't at that point yet in their training program, and it was incredibly difficult to to have to do what we did. So, yeah, we um, initially, yeah, some, some, some big steps for us to take. And how did sort of your workforce respond to that? I, of course, appreciate that you're a smaller team and presumably a sort of quite tight knit as a result. But I can imagine that certainly in the early days of the pandemic, there were probably one or two sort of anxious faces there. They were maybe nervous about actually working. And how was it sort of trying to keep on top of that? Yeah, well, one of the first things we did was we took on board um, an outsourced HR, a human resource company to work with us, who I actually knew the owner of this company quite well as a personal friend, but had never actually used their services. But we took an HR company on in the very early days when we knew, obviously, things were going to have to happen on the HR side, such as redundancies, furloughing staff, etc. And they came in, basically, and really, really did hold our hands and really helped us. And yeah, I mean, among the rest of the staff, obviously, making two redundancy sends a real shot way through the rest of the team it's something that you know at click we've never done before and there was a lot of um unease there was there was a lot of fear i think about nobody really knew what was was coming what what could happen i was absolutely adamant that there was no way my business was going to go anywhere and everybody was going to be um looked after and, and and you know we did that um we obviously after we had to make the first two redundancies we then furloughed a further four staff but kept everybody else on and, and you know we managed to keep plowing on and, and, and we only in the end furloughed those four staff for five months and then we managed to bring every single member of the team then back on board because business picked up and um, you know we managed to um, you know continue albeit obviously everybody worked from home but you know we managed to continue which was was just the best thing and, 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 and to be fair we just kicked on from there and, and really never been busier. That's really encouraging to sort of hear that things are starting to uh, to pick up. And I can imagine with that, there's some real sort of optimism ahead of that July 19th freedom date now that, you know, we've got a working vaccination program in place, restrictions are going, and this could hopefully be sort of the finishing line with regards to the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, 19th of July is, is as they're calling it, release day or freedom day or whatever else they're calling it. I mean, to be fair, we've been back in the office um, since about March this year, but obviously on quite a strict rota basis where we've had half to half. We've split the, my team into two, team A and team B, and we do a rota. So we have half, one team in and one team at home. And then obviously we, we split that. So it's given everybody that opportunity to, to get back in the office because, you know, um, I, maybe as a, as a 53-year-old, was quite happy working from home, but the younger staff, were really um, anxious to get back in the office. They they were really struggling, some of the younger staff in, in the team. And we do take on quite a lot of graduates at Click who graduate from university with maybe English history degrees. And then we basically train them up, up from scratch in how to, to, to write business tenders. But so they're very much, you know, used to a very um, social life and, and, and they were struggling at home. They were struggling with the isolation. They were also... Mm 
starting to lose confidence in their ability working solely stuck away at home. And even though we were doing Zoom calls with them, we were talking to them two, three times a day, every day, it just wasn't quite the same. So to be able to start bringing them back in from March has, has made a huge difference to both their um, their health, their mental health, but also, um, you know, to, to, to their productivity. Yeah, when we think about working from home, we do have to, of course, recognise the benefits, but also understand it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach. That sort of social interaction side of things of being in an office or a work environment i think pre-pandemic that is something that we've certainly taken for granted somewhat isn't it and also when it comes to the accommodation that people are living in when you are occupying say a one or two bedroom flat that doesn't have an outdoor garden area you're not getting that same benefit from working from home and enjoying the outdoors as maybe some other people who maybe occupy sort of a bigger house with an outdoor garden and therefore experiences of the lockdown and the work from home side of things have been very different for different people so it seems to me in light of that that when we think about changes to our working practices that are going to be coming out as a result of the covid period a hybridized approach between the two having the option to work from home but also that option to go and work in the office that's probably more likely to be the status quo isn't it moving forward yeah, I agree, and and because my uh, predominant, the majority of the staff that um, we I employ are, are writers, so that you know they're 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 writing quite complex business tenders documents, and and also having brainstorm calls with clients, and and and, and therefore they sometimes need that peace and quiet. They sometimes need that isolation, but just not all the time. So yeah, that hybrid version is, is, is a good way to go, but it. it as you say, not you know, not every shoe fits every foot as such, and and then we have to look at every single one of our staff and say what works best for you. One of our younger uh, graduates, you know, she she wants to be in the office full time all the time, and 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 her, you know, the difference in in her personality and her work since she's come back in the office is phenomenal, uh, just because she feels more confident. Yeah, and I think in certainly industries where you are writing and in some ways you're also being creative in a sense, it's good to just have people there in the same room to kind of bounce off as well. And that's also something that's got to be taken into account there. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and you know, and because we're bringing in graduates where, you know, they have absolutely zero experience of writing um, tenders or, or quite often dealing with clients full stop um, in a working sense. Um, you know, to have that uh, mentoring and have it on a face-to-face basis, it, 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 it's priceless, really. And that that is something that, that we struggled with during lockdown. We were we couldn't recruit because of that. We weren't able to give them that mentorship in the same way. But since, um, you know, luckily since March, when we started to return to the office on a very phased return, um, we have been able to recruit two more graduates. And they're undergoing training right now, which is, which is great news for us because once again, we can start to grow and kick on. Growing and expansion are two fantastic words to be hearing at a time like this, absolutely, when it's been a struggle for so many other businesses. And I think it's testament to the resilience that industry has showed by and large to be able to sort of keep running, keep the economy in the country running through the pandemic and be able to look at growing in the post-COVID world. And just sort of looking back over sort of the ordeal of the last 15 or 16 months, it's been a real period of self-reflection and a real period of learning, hasn't it? Um, What are some of the key lessons for you do you think that you've sort of taken away from this experience well I think I mean I certainly think for me um, 
it, I make me laugh when I think of this one, but it's really, I don't need to sit on the M6 for five hours or six hours to go and see a client for 20 minutes. And that's always been my in my in my psyche and it's always been my work ethic that I have to go and sit and see a client. I have to go to a face-to-face meeting with a client. And I think it's from my previous work life was recruitment and, and it was always, we had to go and see clients and it was always drummed into me. And, and now I sit there and think, you know, I, I would literally be on the motorway in my car for six hours for a 20-minute meeting. And I think, you know, the whole, if there's one good thing, really good thing that's come out of the whole thing for me is that, is that everybody now accepts that virtual world, that you know, Zoom, that team calls, whatever method it is that you use is totally acceptable and that we don't necessarily need to jump in our car and, 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 and sit on the motorway all day. So I think that's one thing that's really changed for me. Mm. And the other thing is the way that, I also deliver a lot of training. I mean, in in, in the last year, I've trained over um, 500 people um, over Zoom um, or or Teams or whatever method, but um, over 500 people have had online training from me, whereas it always used to be face-to-face. People would be put up in hotels, you know, traveling all over the country. And I just think it's changed and it's changed forever. And I think that's one positive we can take out of it. Yeah, definitely. I think we're looking a lot more at our time and our cost efficiency now, aren't we? As well as also our sustainability, because where you're not having to travel to go to those meetings, it's also knocking sort of your carbon footprint down as well. And when we're talking about building back better in this period of recovery, and we're talking about a sustainable recovery, these are all going to be really important considerations for business. Absolutely, yeah, and 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 work-life balance, and I think that's the mm. other thing that this whole lockdown has taught us. Is you know, a lot of people have been able to spend a lot more time with their families at home, and that work-life balance is 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 really key. So, you know, I think we need to look at every individual employee as an individual. What are their circumstances, and you know, what you know, what does that individual need, and how do they need to be managed, and how does their welfare need looking after to make sure that we all you know, move on from this and, and, and take away real valuable lessons and, and that, uh, you know, that everybody is treated as an individual. Exactly right. As we move into that sort of post-pandemic world, it's important that we sort of don't lose sight of the lessons and sort of phase back into the old normal, as it were. And I'm pretty confident, of course, given just how traumatic in a way this last year has been, that that's not going to happen. But if we do, Andrea, think about the next sort of 12 months ahead of us before we do wrap up on the show today, um, I'd be interested to understand what your priorities are over at Click and indeed, where do you see yourselves this time next year as we hopefully embrace what the post-pandemic world is going to bring us personally i'd like to see myself on a beach this time next year <laughs> but that's just personal no business wise um yeah you know we well we, as i said earlier we've already recruited two new graduates and we will look to kick that program on again as we did before and recruit more um really good bright young graduates out of uni you know that might struggle you know couple of graduates we've had before you know that not that there's anything wrong with what they were doing when they were working in retail or, or, or working you know it, 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 but they studied you know maybe four four years for a degree in English history and then just couldn't get work so we were really keen to kick that graduate program on and, and take on and train more recruits and, and and get them up to you know a real high level of business writing so certainly growth for us and we've already started to grow we've had a phenomenal 12 months really um, bearing in mind what the country's been through what the world's been through we've had a, a phenomenal 12 months um, you know picking up 20 brand new clients um, 
you know, uh, uh, I think on average, I think we're about £160 million worth of contracts we've won for clients through working with them, writing tenders for them. And, and the only way is up for us, really. We just want to push on now and get those figures, um, you know, even greater and um, probably dip our feet back into the awards uh, market again. We've, we've in previous years, gone to business awards and been very, very successful. And I think we'd like to maybe go back and have a look at business awards again and see if we can yet again be successful because I think that's not only for obviously for, for the business it, it's excellent to win awards in industry awards but it's also great for staff morale as well and, and it really makes mm. them feel like they're part of a real quality business. Yeah, certainly. And um, it seems as if to me, there's plenty to be getting your teeth into over the next year or so. Some fantastic plans there and do wish you all the luck in the world and hopefully making those a reality. And as we sort of get closer to maybe this time next year and we start to see more of what this post-pandemic period hopefully is going to bring us, I'd really enjoy Andrea actually welcoming you back onto the show with us just to see how things are getting on in implementing that vision. Because I've got to say, I really, really enjoyed having you on the show with us today. And it's been a nice dose of, dose of positivity at a key time oh that's great I mean positivity is me I think you know Mm. our little motto really is kept calm and we carried on you know our business is called click we kept calm and and we certainly carried on throughout the whole thing and and, and we always will because you know we employ 13 people we've got an awful lot of clients that need to win business and that's just our motto really so positivity all the way and I think it's the only way you can be and uh, yeah I'd love to come back on I've really enjoyed it Yes, likewise as well, Andrew. And just before, of course, we wrap up, do take care and stay safe as well with everything still going on because we're not quite there yet. Um, July the 19th is in sight um, and better days are ahead of us, I'm sure. Yeah, that's great. And thank you, Scott, you too. And thanks for the opportunity to come on and talk about my business. It's been brilliant. Thank you. (laughs) It certainly has. And I'm sure the listeners share that sentiment um, as well. And I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing from you, Andrea. And to the listeners as well that are tuning into today's episode, please do yourselves take care and stay safe because it does make such a difference in saving lives during this time. We are almost there and better days, I'm sure, are coming. Um, It was a pleasure, of course, having Andrea Childs, owner and MD of Click Business Solutions, joining us on the show to talk about how she has managed through the COVID period. And next up on the programme, we have a very apt guest coming on in the form of Sir Jeff. Hurst, a former professional footballer and manager. Of course, he remains the only player in history to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, which he famously did in 1966 as England beat West Germany 4-2 after extra time. It remains the Three Lions' only major international title to date. So Jeff will be joining us on the programme next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run 
uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Pilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, 
this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it. And, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, it was also, for me, fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare them and teach and coach the players to be 
prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic players. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it, yes, I think it, Leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into the coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing today, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, 
we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they. Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence going back to that third gold in the world cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about. I, I 
kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, uh, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a midfield mm. player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. 
Uh, Jimmy Greaves isn't playing with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time of the globe and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final 
So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played eight actually in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was, and I uh, enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela in fact that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways and I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed yes it is very good good advice yes so Jeff thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the program this morning it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life career and leadership and it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the program in future to discuss further pleasure thank you enjoy, enjoy being part of the program thank you Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.